0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
1: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be
2: Extra Environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go
1: that you are a stranger. The Outsider the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie.
1: Hey, Seth. How has it been adjusting to North America once again? Now that you're back on American soil, what is it like
0: to make that transition? Well after the 24-hour party people lifestyle of Spain, it's been a little bit rough coming back to the grind of sitting in the cubicle and enjoying editing video all day long. As you might have suspected, my immune system was not nearly up to the task of keeping me healthy while staying up for three days at a time. So I've contracted myself a little bit of a cold and uh, now I'm doing my best to fight that off.
1: Well, I don't want to share too much from one of our upcoming interviews with Steven Buhner, who's an expert in low-tech medicine, in other words, using herbs and and other plants, but he recommended fresh ginger juice for anyone that has a cold. I've tried it a few times this winter already, and it has headed off anything that I had, except for a nasty tooth infection that I had that I had to get a root canal for that was rough. Ginger will not solve an infected tooth. Oh, that's
0: too bad. Maybe if you rub some garlic on the tooth, it would help. I could have tried that I didn't yeah or some deep tissue massage yeah anyway how's life in Vancouver going
1: well I was down at the butcher the other day to buy some rabbit meat because I wanted to make a rabbit stew and I look up at the television and the guy who's deboning the rabbit for me he looks at the TV and he's like oh that's the second time that's happened already this game and I look up and I'm like oh it's Monday Night Football there was a blackout at Monday Night Football at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and they couldn't keep the lights on enough, and it caused the game to be delayed. And really? Yeah, I was watching it as it was happening. I was like, oh, my God, the, I've never seen this like, normalcy disrupted like this much in the United States. You know, there's the Occupy movement, and there's all these things. But the NFL, the spectacle of the NFL game is one of the definitive media images of the United States and to see the lights flickering on and off and all the people sitting in the stands and Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, running up to the referees and like saying, you know, come on, what's going on and and all these things. It was just an incredible image. And I was so struck by it because I used to work in the utility industry. And one of the things that I realized when I went out to all these coal plants was the poor shape that the energy infrastructure infrastructure in the United States is in. And I realize that there are a lot of issues that maybe we can go into a little bit more detail about at another time, but uh, there's definitely a lot of issues. But it goes to show you that you can be the highly paid and extremely talented quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers football team, but uh, it doesn't matter how much or how uh, powerful you you may be, uh, you still can't turn the lights on if the infrastructure has failed. And it was one of those teachable moments, I think, for a lot of people where they're like, oh why is this happening and there's something at like a giants game i think last year where there were lights flickering on and off and quite frankly i read in an article a bit later that it would take a 2.2 trillion dollar investment for the next five years to get the U.S. infrastructure up to speed so that bridges don't crumble and lights don't go out, and it kind of shows you the magnitude of the problem that we're facing. I mean, so much so that the person we're speaking with today doesn't even think that it's a problem at all. Uh, He calls it a predicament because there is no
0: solution. So, Justin, tell me a little bit more about what the druid John Michael Greer, has to say.
1: Yeah, so today we're speaking with John Michael Greer, who is on episode 18 of The Extra Environmentalist. He's back because he's not only a prolific blogger, but he puts out a book so often. I don't know how he has time for anything else. He doesn't uh,
0: watch TV ever.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things, I guess, of being a druid is you watch a lot less TV and yeah. football games. And so he put out a book called Apocalypse Not. It's about all of these historical movements where they thought the end of the world was coming. They thought the deity was coming to save them or they thought, you know, something was going to happen and it was going to create this utopian world and there was going to be an apocalypse beforehand. And they were all disappointed.
0: Pretty interesting how these themes have kind of recycled themselves throughout history, throughout different religions, all over the world. These themes of the end of the world coming along and the, savior coming down out of the sky and saving people. And we kind of investigate these a little bit in the interview today, don't we, Justin?
1: Yeah, and one of the core themes of the Extra Environmentalist is we are not afraid to cover the reality of the situation in the world right now. There's a lot of really scary things that are occurring with our money and financial system and around the world with our energy problems. One of the memes that I hear a lot is that people think that with a collapse of society that maybe we'll get this utopian vision that they've always imagined for an ideal society. And what John Michael Greer is telling us is that we can't really count on one thing to go out there and create it. We have to count on ourselves. And I think that's his core message. And we recorded this interview a few months ago when Texas hadn't received hardly any rain, which John Michael Greer refers to towards the end of the interview. So I think it actually has rained in Texas since then, but you'll you'll understand what he means when we get to that part. I'm excited. Are you excited, Justin? So excited that I think we should just dive in. Thanks for coming back so soon to The Extra Environmentalist, John. Last time you were on, we spoke about your book on economics, The Wealth of Nature. But today, we're here to talk about your recent book on the apocalypse myth throughout history, Apocalypse Not, A History of the End of Time. Anything you want to start off telling us uh, about the book?
3: Well, it, it was kind of an interesting project because, as, as you know, I do a lot of writing in the, in the field of peak oil and the future of industrial society, and one of the things that happens routinely is that I'm accused of being a doomsayer. I'm accused of claiming that the end of the world is about to happen, and the sky is about to fall. That, that's, a, that's one half of the critiques I get. The other half of the critiques I get are the ones who think that I'm a hopeless optimist and, and don't realize that the world is about to come to an end. But so but the whole 2012 business and the rapture and the singularity and all versions of the old apocalyptic myth. And I had the chance um, in in this book to really get down and talk about the history of the whole thing and what that implies for um, the various apocalyptic claims being circulated nowadays.
1: Perhaps you could start out uh, by describing for us the origin of the apocalypse myth as you trace it throughout history in the book.
3: One of the things that really sets it apart from, from a lot of other themes that you get in, in human cultures is that this one actually seems to have a trifle beginning. And it seems to have started with a single person. That person was Zarathustra. He was the founder of what we now call the Zoroastrian religion. He lived probably around 1300 BC in what's now Iran. And he seems to have been the first person to think that the world was about to be completely destroyed and transformed into the world that he thought we ought to be living in a world where everyone who agreed with him would, would you know, get all the good stuff, and everyone who disagreed with him would, like, be forced to swim in rivers of molten metal and other fun stuff like that. There are some complex factors that probably fed into it. There are old myths, uh, historical cycles of, of celestial and astronomical cycles, and, and things like that, but he seems to have been the guy who came up with the notion that we now hear so often, that the world that we know is about to be replaced by, in effect, somebody's favorite daydream.
0: We see these myths, they pop up in major religions, they pop up, you know, in societies all over the world and throughout time. Why are these myths so prevalent in people's minds? Are they simply ways of manipulating large populations to get people under control? Is it, is it ways that people try to deal with their own humanity and their own fragility on this planet? Why are these myths so prevalent in our society?
3: There are two main factors, and I want to talk of, I'll talk about them one at a time. The first one, you can see by comparing it to certain other myths that are also very prevalent. And they're prevalent because... They have a very powerful emotional appeal. The example that comes to mind right now is the myth of the speculative bubble. Um, You remember when real estate was hot a few years ago? You could hear all these people insisting that the price of real estate was going to keep on going up forever. Okay? Back when the tech bubble was going on, it was tech stocks that were going to keep on going, on, keep going up forever. I'll go back through every speculative bubble in history, back to tulip mania in 17th century Holland. You've got the same notion that some particular class of of, of investment opportunities could keep on in gain, gaining price in price forever. Now, of course, it's absurd. It never works. It always ends in a crash. But people believe it because it feeds their fantasies of getting, getting rich without doing anything, money for nothing. Unlike the rock song, There Are No Chicks For Free particularly involved, but you get the point. The, the apocalypse myth is the same sort of thing. It always fails. No matter what, if you bet on an apocalypse, you're wrong. But the idea that the, that the universe might suddenly be changed into what you want it to be is very tempting. And when people are under stress, when people are looking at a very difficult future, in times of major major social change, in times of where, where certain traditional ideas are breaking down don't work anymore, this can become very, very enticing. And so people get into it, and once they get into it, of course, they commit themselves to it. The the sort of doubling down phenomenon, you know, when things start turning against you, if you're committed, you don't want to admit that you've been an idiot, so you accelerate.
1: So the apocalypse becomes the means to the end of delivering the world that you desire. If you look at any
3: apocalyptic idea, the, the payoff for the righteous remnant is always that they get the world they want whatever it is, whether it's, you know, the new Jerusalem descending from the heavens, you know, whoever doubted your, your faith in Jesus Christ being tormented in hell for all eternity, or whether it's the, the dictatorship of the proletariat and the state withering no away and we all eat strawberries and cream forever, um, you know, or, or the singularity with, you know, everybody be, being beamed up into, into perfect robot bodies and living the good life in outer, outer space forever, or what have you. It's Oh, it, or well uh, or another example the survivalist thing where you're basically blazing away at full auto at hordes of zombies whatever you fantasize you can project onto the ink blot patterns of the post apocalyptic future and so it's very tempting if you know if if you don't ask too many hard questions or if you're too stressed to really take a look at things and say okay well probably not
0: why do people retreat to this fantasy instead of actually building that world why do they impose rules and, and strict laws on themselves instead of actually changing the world to reflect that that nirvana or that heaven that they, they so desire? Why do they turn to strict, humanistic, rigid laws?
3: Or any number of other things. I mean, there's the, the gimmick that's supposed to bring the end of the world, it's usually not something you have to do, is one thing. The, the 2012 people, the, and that, that's, that's a good example here, and, and we, it's been echoed throughout history. The whole 2012 fixation is kind of the end point for the New Age movement. When you look back along the trajectory of the New Age movement, you find that it started out with a huge amount of idealism. People were convinced that we have, we have these new ideas, these marvelous new ways of understanding the world, we can take those and apply them in our lives, and the world will become a marvelous, glowing new place because we can create our own reality, we can recreate the world, everybody will will soon realize just how marvelous these, these great new ideas are, and, and Utopia is breathing down our necks. That was the early version, and it didn't work. And so they doubled down another, another notch and said, okay, well, we have to try harder. And they tried harder. And then you started having things popping up like the Aquarian Conspiracy, how things really are moving in the right direction, even though it doesn't look like it. And then things didn't move in that direction. Then you started getting the David Icke phenomenon where people say, okay, well, the fact that the New Age hasn't arrived is the fault of evil space lizards or or somebody or other. You look for scapegoats. You, you can spend a lot of time getting really excited about chasing down scapegoats and claiming that um, somebody that the friend of, a friend of 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 a somebody you know actually saw George W. Bush metamorphose into a, into a space lizard. But that doesn't solve your problem either because you're still trying to do your new age thing and the world is still getting worse. So you go to the next step, which is to insist that on. You know, December 21st, 2012, the New Age is going to arrive anyway by, you know, the Space Brothers or Quetzalcoatl or or something is going to make it happen. And that's the ultimate doubling down. Now, exactly the same thing has happened, interestingly enough, with the the current, the the rapture thing among the fundamentalists. Um, I'm going to guess that the, the two of you are probably not old enough to remember the Jesus people of the 1970s. Yeah, know. a very idealistic, very you know God's love sweeping over us all kind of thing, and it was just the same sort of thing. You know, there was going to be this great revival of of, of you know faith and love and kind of a kind of a post hippie Christianity was going to sweep everything. And of course, it didn't. And so they got deeply into the whole born again business. Well, you know, it didn't work. And we'll we'll try harder, and we'll try harder, and then you start chasing scapegoats, and now you've got people, many of whom. 30, 35 years ago were convinced that God's love was going to redeem the whole world who are now waiting for, you know, to be teleported off the planet so that everybody else can be annihilated for not following the program. It's a very common trajectory. So you know when, when you start seeing a lot of apocalyptic things, a lot of end-of-the-world claims that somebody's dream Somebody's idea of where the future is going, somebody's effort to make the future go somewhere, has ground to a halt, has failed. And so they've been backed into the corner of insisting that the universe is going to give them what they want when they failed to produce it themselves.
1: And I prefer the Christianity that involves uh, all the snakes hanging off of, of everybody. I just thought that was entertaining. <laughs> but, um, but so what, what you're saying is 2012 is the end of the New Age, essentially.
3: Probably, yeah. My, my working guess is that in the aftermath of 2012, the whole thing is going to dry up and blow away, probably for a hundred years from now. There will probably still be some little cult in, in, in Montana somewhere that, that treats the writings of, of Shirley MacLaine and, um, you know, uh, Jose Arguelles as their sacred scripture and, and can tell you in very earnest tones how actually the world really did change in 2012, but it was a spiritual change rather like the Jehovah's Witnesses
0: and by the way I have seen George W uh, transform into a space reptile many times But, uh,
3: um, now, and you were smoking what at the time? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, what happens when these dates come and go, and these timelines, you know, elapse and nothing happens? You know, they set this date where 2012 December whatever mm-hmm. comes, and and nothing happens. Does this change people's mindsets that are have been believing in these dates for a long time? They, does it force them to look further and create larger timelines? What what happens?
3: There is no one answer. Um, typically, what happens though is first of all, especially when a lot of publicity has been made about a given date, as you know, 2012 or um, let's say the, the the Millerite business where um, you know it, the world was going to end in 1844 and a huge effort was made to publicize it. The, the first thing that happens is that you have the rest of the human race laughing at you, which is kind of difficult to deal with. Most faiths can handle persecution just fine. Very few can handle humiliation. So you have that, and you have anybody who, ha- who has had second thoughts at all or can't really handle the sense that they've made a complete idiot of themselves scampering off to do something else. And very, you know, very often people will scatter to other fringe religious organizations or what have you, and some of them will just move somewhere else and pretend they never heard of the, the end of the world. Some will buckle down and come up with a new date, but it's usually a fairly small number. Um, it's interesting to note, though, that uh, Whitley Stryber, who actually played a significant role at one point in helping to publicize the whole 2012 business, is already starting to market stuff focused on 2020. He's smart.
0: <laughs> they just kick it down the road a little bit. Huh? just
3: kick it down the road, yeah. you know, Because he, I, I, think it's, it's, I think he knows perfectly well nothing's going to happen in, 20, in, in 2012. And the thing is, I think that's true of a lot of people. I know a fair number of people who talk the 2012 business, I don't know any of them who stopped putting money into their retirement accounts.
4: Oh,
5: doomsday has been foretold in the Mayan calendar. Mayan talking about
3: December 21st, 2012, as being the end of, of this cycle. The Chinese
5: oracle of the I Ching. The I Ching is the most remarkable, most enduring
6: oracle in existence.
5: And even an Internet-based prophetic software program for the year 2012. A date prophesied to be the end of the world.
6: Everything that we have looked at for years in the Bible is all just coming right together right now. Now we cannot tell you that we have entered the tribulation period. We can tell you that
5: 700 years ago the rabbis wrote that in the year 2012 Rome will be destroyed by meteors. by Asteroid, meteorite stones, boy everything just looks so nifty right now. Back in 1899, something was uh, identified called Schumann Cavity Resonance. What it was, was the heartbeat, the frequency beat of the Earth. From the time of its discovery, 1899, to 1986, this heartbeat frequency was a constant. Boom, boom. Boom. from 1986 onwards it started to rise dramatically. Just when people started to wake up in increasing numbers. It's gone through nine, apparently the last I heard it was gone through 10 cycles. And the projection is that by 2012, which is the point the Maya say in their calendar and so many other calendars uh, point to the same period, that the jump will be made from this cycle of human evolution into the next one as the 26,000-year cycle comes to an end and we enter the start of the next one.
6: So what does David Icke do? He talks about the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, these global elitists, these power structures, all real, all true, all demonstrated by bills and executive orders and prime ministers and premiers and presidents. All real, meat and potatoes. Something you can bite into. Something that is, is, is easily demonstrable. And then you got David Icke at the end of all this, he says, by the way, they're blood-drinking lizards. Blood. Al Gore needs blood to drink, uh, so does Prince Philip. I mean, it's 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 asinine. And it's being picked up by people, and so it discredits all of the reality people are talking about. It's going to go forward for a few years yet. No, I don't have any losers. How long, David? <laughs> My
5: view is, and I think 2012 is a diversion, personally. And I think you're going to see that exploited by Hollywood movies and other things. see it already. Yeah. Well, my, my feelings around 2016 life in this reality is going to transform um, and it's going to transform because uh, this is a react this is a this is a uh, a virtual reality quite provable fact
6: and that's problem that's the problem with david Icke. he's got a good line to a point and then he discredits it all it's like a turd in the punch bowl that's his job he's got this nice big thing you know this, this nice fruit punch nice ice cream floating around in it you know and then he takes a big dump right in the middle of it and no one's gonna drink out of that punch bowl.
5: I see with what's going on uh, in the world today all the turmoil, uh, you see with earthquakes and famines and uh, the hurricanes, everything going on, the floods. uh, I think it's a wake up call to both uh, Jews and Christians that we need to be looking up and looking for the Messiah.
1: You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with John Michael Greer about his latest book, Apocalypse Not. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the story of the Millerites and that great disappointment, because great disappointment. I'm, I'm really interested in what it would feel like to be one of those people who were there
3: on that hill
1: on and the, then the, get yeah, that feeling the, the next hills, morning.
6: Yeah.
3: To get into the Millerites, you've got to start actually right after the War of 1812. The United States had successfully kicked Great Britain's butt a second time in a row, and the country was was expanding, it was prospering, and so there uh, there, there, there was a lot of idealism, there was a lot of enthusiasm, and America produced its first great counterculture at that time, associated these days with the transcendentalists, people like Thoreau and Emerson. But it was a much wider thing, and it was centered in Boston. Boston was kind of the San Francisco of that time, and you had the, you know these the, this huge Bostonian counterculture. You had missionaries, literally Christian missionaries, um, evangelical Christianity was a left-wing religion in those days, um, you know, going all over the country, um, preaching vegetarianism and anti-slavery and anti-alcohol. Um, you know, one of the differences between the 19th and 20th centuries is that 19th-century countercultures were generally against drugs, while well, 20th-century countercultures tended to indulge in them. Um, but you know, they, they had all of these things. Passivism was big, um, dress reform, big important thing. You know, people should women shouldn't have to wear corsets anymore. There were all of these, you know, social change movements that were all sort of wrapped up together. They actually accomplished a fair amount. Anti-slavery and pacifism were two of the really big issues. And it became increasingly clear as time went on that they could have an end to slavery or they could have an end to war, but not both, because it was going to take a really big war to put an end to slavery, as in fact it did. And so what happened toward the, toward the second half of the 1830s is you started to have people beginning to get into that sort of, well, the world is not providing us with the utopian society. We, we, we think we deserve what gives. And this is when William Miller came along. Uh, William Miller was a was a New England farmer, a uh, part-time preacher who had been studying the Bible as as people did in those days by the hour, and he had become convinced that he'd figured out the right date for the end of the world. That he knew when Jesus was going to appear in the clouds in glory and you know usher in the millennium. And it was probably 1843, maybe 1844. It was a little difficult to tell due to some chronological issues in the calculations. But there's this there, there's this passage in Daniel where you know, after 2,300 days shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So you start with what Daniel's talking about, which is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. You had 2,300 days, making one day equal one year. And... You're in 1843 or 1844, depending on your date for the destruction of the temple. So he was going around preaching this to, you know, to meeting houses in in up and down New England. And people were going, well, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Except then he started running across people from this Boston-centered counterculture who were going, you mean it? 1843? Oh, cool. Then we're going to get the perfect utopian world that we always wanted in just a few years. And it took off like wildfire. And you had a huge number of people all over, you know, well, over most of America at this time. Didn't catch on much in the South, didn't catch on much in the very far West, well, hundreds of far West at the time. But in much of America, it was a huge, huge social movement on a scale of a whole 2012 business. And there were a series of, of kind of false alarms. People were thinking, okay, well, it's going to be a spring equinox of 1843. No, well, that didn't work. And some calculations were made. And finally, because Miller himself refused to set a date, he knew the limitations of his chronology, but eventually one of the other Millerite preachers, because by this time there are hundreds of them, figured out that it was going to be October 23rd, 1844, the day of atonement in the, in the Jewish calendar. And it just went nuts. There, there's some reason to believe it's a highly controversial point that some people actually made themselves white robes so they'd be properly dressed when they ascended into heaven. Uh, but certainly tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people were standing there on hillsides, you know, on, on hilltops, places where they would have a good view when Jesus appeared in glory in the clouds. And, of course, he didn't show. I don't think he called in advance either. Uh, but,
0: Wait, Jesus didn't show up then?
3: Jesus didn't show up.
0: Oh, man.
3: Yeah. And so, you know, and so basically, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans were left. I mean, many of these people had actually gone whole hog. They'd like sold their farms and quit their jobs and spent the the last weeks before time came to an end engaged in in nonstop prayer and, and, you know, repenting their sins and this kind of stuff. And then nothing happens. And there they are sitting on the hilltop. It, it was called the Great Disappointment, and a huge number of people just kind of slunk down, you know, to fa- facing the, the raucous laughter of the rest of America. It, well, not an easy time. A lot of them scattered into other, uh, you know, at least temporarily, into various other sects. The, the Shakers got um, a fair number of converts. Um, various people went to various places. Spir- when spiritualism took off just a little while later, A lot of former millwrights bailed into that, but a lot of them just went to ground. And the interesting thing that happened was that it was like 75 years after that, before you really started getting a big wave of apocalyptic fantasy going on in America again, because everybody remembered what happened.
0: Does it just pop up kind of throughout history?
3: It is very specifically a meme in the sense that, that Richard Dawkins defined the thing. It's a set of ideas. That spreads from person to person, the way a gene spreads through a population. Um, the mutation that brought it into being was was in the mind of Zarathustra back in 1300 BC. And it, you know, it has this historical trajectory where you can follow it from culture to culture, from place to place and eventually around the world. It's always an option. Everybody's heard of the idea. I mean, everybody has that, that sort of that sort of meme, inactive form in the the genetic structure of their mind, if you want to say, the mimetic structure of their mind. And so, under certain circumstances, that meme gets active. People buy into it, and away we go.
1: Is that meme there because of human nature, or is it because monotheism has become so prevalent
3: around the world? It's a really complicated question. I mean, how do we know? It's really difficult to do a controlled double-blind experiment with a meme, Uh, especially one that's this well-established at this point. Certainly, though, Zarathustra was as far as we know, the first monotheist in human history. There's some question as to whether his dates, you know, where his dates fall – in comparison to Akhenaten, the, the Egyptian heretic pharaoh, who was also a monotheist. But one or the other of them were apparently the very first people to come up with the idea that there was just one god, one divine power in the cosmos. And of course, that that belief has certain difficult elements. You, you know, if you're a polytheist, as most human beings have always been, there's no problem at all explaining why the world is kind of a mess. It was made by a committee, basically. And there are, there are many different gods, no, no one of them is infinitely powerful or or infinitely wise, or infinitely benevolent. And so if things go wrong, you know that, okay, the gods are quarreling. You read Homer's Iliad. The Greeks have gods on their side, and the Trojans have gods on their side. There's a big, basically a big squabble going on in, on Mount Olympus that's manifesting itself down here on Earth in the form of the Trojan War. And so you don't have what, what religious philosophers call the problem of evil. If you're a monotheist, you don't have that out If, in fact, there's only one God, and he's infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and infinitely benevolent and loving, why is there so much misery in the world? It's a major question. An entire branch of theology, called theodicy, has emerged to try to come up with with explanations for this. And almost all of them end up buying into, at one level or another, buying into Zarathustra's notion that, well, you know, the temporary state of affairs with all this misery, it's, it's temporary. It's, it's just for a moment. It's a ramshackle transitional structure which will soon be replaced by a perfect utopian world in which the one only um, infinitely wise, infinitely loving, infinitely powerful God will actually do what he's supposed to do and give us the perfect world he, he's, by the theory, capable of producing. The popularity of monotheism, of the monotheistic desert religions, really, in recent centuries has had a lot to do with it. But the thing is, it's caught on very well in places that don't have a trace of monotheism in their religious culture. Part
1: of the problem of monotheism is that if there's one true God,
3: then why is there evil in the world, is what you're saying. Then, then so why, the, is, the, why is there so much misery? In the Masonic Lodge, I'm afraid, Mason, one of the things that's traditionally in a Masonic Lodge is a. It is a pavement um, of white and black squares, equal number. And those white and black squares are the good and evil aspects of life, and they're in about equal proportions. We all have very bad days. We're all going to get old and die. We're all going to be sick at various points. Um, there's a lot of violence in the world. There's a lot of, a lot of natural disasters. There are people who die. You, know, you get an earthquake, buildings collapse, and people who die for no imaginable reason. It doesn't simply concentrate on the wicked. So if you're a monotheist, you have to come up with some way to explain that away. And the whole apocalyptic thing, again, it's a way of doubling down. It's to some extent the last-ditch argument of the monotheist who can't explain why an infinitely powerful, wise, and loving God won't do what an infinitely powerful, wise, and loving God, who has no competition, should logically do and produce a better world than the one we've
0: got. Then it's more like a explanation of the irony of why there's so much suffering. It's
3: an attempt to avoid the irony. It's an attempt to duck out on the irony.
0: Well, yeah, isn't it that just like a direct reaction to the irony then?
3: Yeah, but, it, but a reaction on the order of covering your ears and, co- and scrunching shut your eyes and going, I can't hear you, la, 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 to the irony.
1: So the apocalypse and the idea of the apocalypse is – essentially an, an innovation in dealing with the evil in the world in a monotheistic mindset. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
3: that's one of its major aspects. And it caught on because, again, it has a huge appeal to anybody who's under severe stress. So do you think Zoroaster came up
1: with this immediately? He was like, well, if there's one god, there's evil. He obviously wouldn't create evil, so this has to be temporary, and then well, it'll all well, end. His,
3: his theory was a little more subtle than, than that, in that... Zoroaster believed there were actually two great powers in the world. There was Ahura Mazda, the one true God, and then there was there was Ahriman, the power of the lie, the bad guy, the source of evil in the cosmos. Okay, who wasn't a god, who wasn't divine at all, but who was there from the beginning. But he was going to be eliminated sometime really soon. Zoroastrianism actually works fairly well in in regard to the to the problem of evil because you can always blame it on Ahimon. You've got this evil power that was, that was in existence from eternity, but sooner or later, sometime really soon, um, you know, the forces of goodness are going to defeat the forces of evil once and forever, and then the world becomes perfect again. Later monotheisms haven't left themselves that out. I mean, you've got Satan. And, okay, you've got Satan, but Satan is just uh, you know, a, a kind of dissident archangel. He only... Exists because God allows him to exist an omnipotent. God could annihilate him, you know, just any moment Blip, you don't exist anymore. In fact, you haven't existed since the beginning of the world clip Omnipotence allows you to get away with things like that. If you don't have the concept of an independent and Equally powerful power of evil. You've really got some explaining to do And again the mm-hmm. apocalypse meme is a way to dodge that explanation
0: well, these apocalypse memes have been around for a really long time, probably since it's, it's, you know humans three, have been around.
3: No, 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 no. Only for about no? only for about three thousand years,
0: as far as we no. know.
3: You know, the idea that the world would end was was unthinkable. Nobody had come up with
0: the idea. Then maybe we can ask, I can ask you a little bit more about how the modern apocalypse myth started and started taking shape in the kingdom of of Judea and ended up becoming the origin of the modern myth of apocalypse that we we see today.
3: Well, to understand how, how all this happened is, you know, you had the Zoroastrian religion, which became the national religion of the Persian Empire, and so on. And at the time, the Persian Empire really started expanding westwards into what's now Iraq, into, I'm straight out to the Mediterranean, um, Judea, which had been one of one of hundreds of little bitty kingdoms, um, each of which, by the way, had their own, you know, um, their own tribal god, their own little temple, all this kind of stuff. But The people of Judea had been as part of Babylonian policy, many of the people had been basically force marched, um, rather well, something rather like the Trail of Tears, off to Babylonia, and they were living there in exile. You know, the, you think of them kind of like Cuban exiles in Miami these days, hoping that someday they can go back home, and knowing that the chances are not good. And but in their case, they were in luck because the Persians had a very different idea of effective policy. And when the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire. They're, they looked around at the various small various groups of people, including the, the Jews, and said, oh, you can go home. In fact, you know, we'll, we will allow you to rebuild your city. We'll allow you to rebuild your temple. We don't have a problem with this. And because the, the Jews, unlike most other people of that time, believed that they're, you know, they, they had one god. They didn't have a bunch of them, and they didn't think their god should be, exp- should be symbolized by a statue which was kind of weird by the terms of the time. But the Persians thought that was cool because you can't make a statue of Ohura Mazda either. It's not allowed. The Persians kind of thought the Jews kind of had the right idea. And the Jews were very grateful for the, to, to the Persians for letting them return home and this kind of stuff. And there was a lot of cultural borrowing at that time. A lot of ideas from Persian culture entered into Judaism immediately after the return from the Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. That's, that, that is when, as far as we can tell, the apocalypse meme got, its, got itself into Judaism. You know, and there it was. And it, it didn't really affect a lot of people except the Jews for, for quite some time thereafter. Because, I mean, the Jews, again, were one little ethnic group in a small corner of the Mediterranean world. And most of what the apocalypse meme did for them was make them try to rebel against the Roman Empire and get stomped. This happened like three times in a row as a result of Judaism, as a result of a a tiny little schismatic sect of Judaism that spun off in its own direction, and it turned into Christianity, and became the national religion of the Roman Empire, you know, some centuries down the road. And then you had a little later, very strongly influenced by Judaism, um, Muhammad the Prophet of Islam, launching another major world religion that was largely inspired by Judaism. And both these new religions, these very powerful, enthusiastic, missionary religions, bought into the apocalypse meme from day one.
0: So everyone wanted to get their two cents in with these religious memes, things going on? Yeah,
3: well, well, basically, well basically, I mean, if, if Judaism hadn't turned into the inspiration for these two major religions, we'd probably never have heard. The idea of an end of the world would probably not occur to us today. But the two most influential religions of You know, of of the last 2,000 years, both had apocalypse meme hardwired into their basic structure from very, very early on. All over the world, where Christian and Muslim missionaries went, you know, typically with the assistance of military forces in both cases, you had the apocalypse meme, and you had people preaching, yes, the world is going to end, da-da-da. And a lot, of, a lot of non-Christian, non-Muslim religious groups and cultural groups and so on latched onto it as a propaganda thing or simply bought into it but said, no, no, the world's going to end, and they're the ones who are going to go through the lakes of burning metal and things like that. So it just over the course of the expansion of the, of the two major desert monotheist religions, Christianity and Islam, you had the apocalypse meme splashed over the entire planet, basically. So
1: did Jesus Go ahead. take the apocalypse meme to a new level? What, what did he do to uh, accelerate it, or was it the people around him? We, we
3: don't know. All we've got when it comes to trying to figure out what Jesus said and taught are a collection of gospels, four of them in the Bible, about a couple of dozen that aren't, and very few of them say the same thing. You've got the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they basically all say the same thing, and they have him constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven and how the you know the, the coming of the son of man is going to happen any day now you know be be ready the world is going to end soon or maybe that's what he's talking about we're not sure there's the gospel of john where he never mention he mentions the kingdom of heaven like once there's the gospel of thomas where he doesn't mention it at all most of the gnostic gospels he doesn't mention it at all we don't know which of these express the actual words of jesus nobody yeah, was well. there with a tape recorder it was the first christmas of the
5: post apocalypse
4: this idea was born when you were thinking what if jesus was sitting at my kitchen table with
6: me having coffee right yes yes and what would he say
7: and we thought and thought and we thought Maybe he would say, I miss hearing you say Merry Christmas.
0: We've been talking about austerity. Faced with the difficult task of balancing a budget
6: in these austere times, officials in New York, Suffolk County said on Friday they had no choice. They have to sack Santa. The
0: county executive said he couldn't justify carving out $660 to pay for Santa. This is sad. This is the end of
8: fantasies for children. Come on.
2: I mean, I don't understand why they got to pay Santa, honestly. If you're going to be Santa, you should just do it for free. I mean, what the hell is the point of being Santa? if you have to get paid for it who and those kids aren't gonna know if there's a Santa at the end of their parade if they even have a parade
0: you know what they're getting their parents out of a tough situation if their parents really can't afford gifts can't afford to have
6: Santa so won't have to be you know seeing him in the mall every weekend
4: this is
2: the problem with anti child labor laws we should oh. we should allow child children to work send the children to the Santa
6: Santa's workshop, and then they can pay for Santa. Well, a sign of the times this Christmas, Santa trying to lower the expectations of children in this rough economy, the expensive wish list of kids, maybe not always realistic. This Santa seems to have the spirit, though. Take a listen.
2: Santa always tells the child, Santa promises to bring you something very special, but it's a secret. Santa never promises to bring any gift.
7: I think it's good for Santa to be realistic because the last thing that Santa wants to do is raise the kids' expectations yeah. and say you're going to get everything yeah. on that list. And it also teaches kids, you know, the older Priority. you get, yeah, the right. older you get, the little
6: bit shorter your list should get. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be a volume every, yeah. every also, volume. All the elves can't work on one child's exactly. list. Exactly. Yeah.
7: exactly. Well, I, I think that parents ought to say to their kids, well, you know, Santa's really overworked and Santa's had a very hard year. It's been yeah. a very tough year for Santa. so. Let's go easy and not ask him to bring you too much and (laughs) see how Santa responds. It's the sound of the holidays for a lot of people this year. Present of choice, personal defense. I shot one that has 7 bullets in it. Anna and her friend Blada are part of a new trend. Industry watchers say a bandwagon of women are shopping for guns. Always
8: carry something that will like protect you even if it's a small pocket knife or something. Some are sold to be used for fun.
2: New shotguns, you know how it's a nice uh, stress reliever. It's it's fun to do and relaxing.
7: Others are bought for home defense. No
2: fault of police. They've had their cutbacks and things like that. They just can't do what they could have five years ago. So now people have to be able to help themselves.
7: The world has changed and so has shopping. Anything can happen. Santa,
1: why are you
2: stealing a present? Ho, 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 ho. In the past few years, the boys and girls of the world have been asking for more and more toys, fancier toys. Toys that weren't really in their price range. Well, Santa wanted to make everyone happy. So suddenly, he had to make a lot of toys very quickly. He had to hire every elf he could find. Even those that were unqualified. So unfortunately, a lot of kids got stuck with toys that weren't very good. And Santa didn't have any money to make new ones. What's
1: wrong with the head?
2: Now Santa needs a bailout. And it's not very smart for anyone to buy 700 billion subpar toys.
1: Who could bail you out, Santa? Oh,
2: I don't know. Jesus, I guess. But he's still pretty mad at me. Meanwhile, to stay afloat, I've had to lay off most of my elves and outsource to toy sweatshops in Bangladesh.
1: Am I gonna get a lump of
2: coal in my stocking? Oh, no, dear. Coal's a valuable fossil fuel. You're getting a SkyMall catalog. <clears throat> I wanted Hannah Montana. It's my fault. I was the one that made everyone believe they deserve nice toys in the first place. Turns out, they don't. I guess we're all a little bit responsible, and we're all just going to have to endure a lean Christmas.
5: The infrastructure lies in pieces. You got me through with It's the first Christmas of the post-apocalypse. Thepocalypse Christmas Cost the Pocalypse Christmas Cost the Pocalyps Christmas Cost thepocalypse without the shopping list. Cause thepocalypse
0: Christmas. You're listening to the Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking with John Michael Greer about the end of the world.
1: So we were speaking earlier about the Millerites and how they were Mm -hmm. going through and calculating these dates using these Mm -hmm. passages in the Bible and these, Mm -hmm. you know, calculating out years and such. And so why is it that you think there is such a tendency to take the Bible literally, especially in uh, a lot of American forms of Christianity. There's so much attention paid to literal interpretations of Scripture. I
3: don't understand it at all. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Bible is literally true. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Bible has to be, should be taken literally. And in fact, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So all of these these people who who assume these things are true are dragging that from other sources and putting it into the Bible. As for why? Beats me. I don't happen to know. But right. it has led to a lot of very, very screwy thinking. A lot of that
1: has led to further and further imagination and more and more vivid descriptions of the end of the world and the apocalypse in mm-hmm. Christianity. And a lot of those apocalyptic myths have influenced American foreign policy and have driven American yeah. politics, and mm-hmm. uh, and you see this kind of evangelism in uh, presidential candidate Rick Perry and his <laughs> response prayer rally. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, maybe you could speak a little bit about how apocalypse myths have influenced American foreign policy. And, and if you have any insights into why America is so
3: prone to apocalyptic thinking, that would that would be really great to hear. Well, actually, actually, I'm going to start by addressing the Rick Perry thing, because there's something that I don't think most of our readers may have noticed. This guy has been claiming, he claims, I believe, to be a devout Christian. He claims to be on, on God's side. Have you noticed that it hasn't rained in Texas those of our listeners who have perhaps read the Bible at some point may remember, I think it was Elijah who was um, talking, to, talking to King Ahab of, of, of Israel, who was a very wicked king and was not doing what was right in the sight of God. And what happened to King Ahab was um, catastrophic drought until he repented or something like that. You know, he was, There was no drop of rain. And, you know, I think maybe Rick Perry needs to get the message that he may be not as much on God's side as he thinks. We've had <laughs> hurricanes roll through and veer to avoid Texas. It's getting pretty obvious. I think he needs to break out the sackcloth and ashes and repent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe sacrifice a bull or whatever it
3: was whatever it was, I mean, I, I th- honestly I think that 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 contrition for his sins would probably be, his political sins would probably be a good place to start. The thing is, America has always had this notion of itself as a a, a specially blessed nation, as the lamp unto the nations. The, in back, going back to the Pilgrims, you know, America was going to be the truly godly nation. We've made that such a keynote of our national identity that. It's not, I don't think it's going too far to say that the, the United States, people in America actually, they live in, in a country that doesn't exist, or they think they do. It's as though everybody in America thought that they lived in Oz, and they were constantly talking about the behavior of the wizard and the wicked witches and, and the munchkins and so on, while going about their ordinary lives. The America that people think, that many Americans think of, and this is on the left as well as the right, is a place that doesn't exist. I mean America it's it's my country. You don't have to engage in delusion to recognize that, you know, it's your country, it's your community, it's it's like loving your family. You don't have to think your family is perfect and divinely blessed to care about it.
1: Don't worry, we we know you have a a flag pin on your druid robe, so it's Well I
3: I I put out a flag on the fourth of July. Yeah. Uh, you know the Frankly, I think the Constitution was a very smart document and I'm very fond of our system of government and things like that. But that doesn't mean that there's this there's this painting that you see at Tea Party events sometimes where Jesus is handing the Constitution to George Washington.
0: Wait, he didn't?
3: He didn't. You know, I look at that and you know, this is an insult to both sides. Because on the one hand, the folks who wrote the Constitution worked very hard on it. They did not get it handed to them by, by any divinity. It took them a lot of hard work and calculation and study, and, and it's been fidgeted with ever since because they designed it to be improved over time. So on the one hand, to insist that it got handed to them by Jesus is kind of an insult to them, but it's also kind of an insult to Jesus because you know, if it were actually written by a divine hand, it would be perfect, at least in theory, right? And it isn't that's why we have the clause that allows us to amend it so we can fix it when something comes up
0: we see in hollywood all the time that the end of the world is coming we see all the movies where the large wave comes and you know yeah. wipes away the cities and the mm-hmm. asteroids come and make you know huge apocalyptic Leanings and you mentioned Oz and you mentioned um, you mentioned the the end of the world coming through those memes in Hollywood. Does mm-hmm. Hollywood and oh, yeah. and our our advertisements do they manipulate those feelings in us?
3: Hollywood is about cashing in on culture. It's basically the, what the media, what what television, what video games, all these things are about grabbing images that grab people and then sort of shaking them around and manipulating them. Uh, to get money out of your wallet
0: doesn't matter if it's a religious theme if it's like some ancient human fear you can as long as you can make money off of it as then... long as
3: you as long as you can make money off of it yeah i mean you you've got you've got the horror writers you've got you know, whether it's whether it's erotica, romance, horror, you know, apocalyptic adventure, you know, anything that will push a button sufficient to get somebody to extract a ten dollar bill from their wallet, is fair game. And it can produce a very, a very destructive feedback loop when that's all that's in people's heads because you know they've never bothered to read or watch or listen to anything older than they are.
0: It's kind of like the Y2K scare. Remember when that came around?
3: I remember it vividly. I was involved with the lodge in those days. We had not an end of the world party. Everybody brought a whole bunch of canned food, and so of course, as soon as the world didn't end, we donated to the local food bank. That's very well,
0: responsible.
3: Yeah. yeah, that's kind of the style. But the Y two K thing, one of one of the best stories I ever heard about the apocalypse meme actually came out of the whole Y two K business. A friend of mine, a spiritual teacher of many years of experience, had had an encounter just before the beginning of the year 2000, with this woman who told him she was really, really worried about Y2K, and he was going, I can understand that, okay, you you know, the computer systems shutting down, banking problems, power, this kind of stuff. No, 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 she said him right. That wasn't what bothered her. Her marriage was going to bits. Her job was a dead end. Her life was basically stuck in a rut, and what horrified her beyond imagining was the thought that that January 1st, 2000 would come along and she'd have to keep on living her life she would rather see the world crash into ruin than face her own problems and i think that actually drives a huge amount of the apocalypse meme because it you know it's the ultimate you don't have to deal the world's going to end you don't actually have to like quit your job and do something else you don't have to deal with the problems in your marriage you don't have to deal with the political problems in your society you can just cop out and push it off on God or the Space Brothers or somebody else who is going to bail you out any day now.
1: Is there a psychological profile that you think is more presupposed to apocalyptic thinking? I have my doubts about psychological
3: profiles in general. In the, general, the human mind is an extreme right. personality. is extremely complex.
7: Not Maybe a not life. a
3: profile, but particular traits that lend
7: themselves to it, Apocalypse.
3: I've known, I've known many, many people of many, many kinds, many different personalities, different backgrounds who, who are into it. And I know a lot of people, a very large number of people from equally diverse backgrounds and personalities and this kind of stuff who think it's ridiculous. So I really don't know. Do you
1: think there's a connection between apocalyptic thinking and then conspiracy thinking? People
3: who think there uh, can be because those two those two are two of the standard cop-outs when a movement for some kind of utopian ideal fails to achieve like the New Age movement, as I mentioned. You know, it got to the point where trying to create your own reality was fine, but reality wasn't cooperating. And so you had on the one hand people blaming David Icke's alien space lizards. And on the other hand, you had people, um, you know, getting into the whole, uh, the, the apocalypse du jour that was going to, you know, the Space Brothers were going to land, we were going to have, um, you know, all what have you. The two can go together, but, but they're among the options available to anybody who is, you know, facing the fact that trying to make the world um, behave in accordance with their ideas doesn't necessarily mean the world is going to follow suit.
1: So how do we stop channeling our energy towards creating these imaginative fantasies of, you know, dragons or whatever vision you have of revelations enacting itself to create utopia and actually put
3: that energy into creating a better world around you. Well, the first thing you have to do is is realize the difference between a better world and a perfect world. Because we can all make the world better, but none of us will ever make the world perfect. That's a very difficult thing for most people to, to, to handle, because, you know, especially in a society like ours, which has a very, very deeply rooted sense of entitlement. I want X, therefore I ought to have it. It, it really takes a certain level of maturity, and that's one of the most difficult things to, to encourage. You know, we can encourage it in ourselves. We can look at um, our own beliefs, our own fantasies, our own hopes for the future and say, okay, how realistic is this? And is there anything I can do that could actually bring this about? And we can also just look at the world and say, okay, well, leaving aside the fantasies, what can I do to make it a better place? But all, none of that is as dramatic, I mean, it's, it's, it's much, much more exciting to think of, you know, vast waves sweeping over cities or Jesus appearing in glory in the clouds or what have you than it is to think of, okay, well, I'm going to go volunteer at a food
0: bank.
1: You don't see Michael Bay directing a movie about uh, CGI volunteering at a food bank. It's not that
3: exciting. There's, a, there's another issue here, which is that, um, I mean, our society, American society, has made a lot of very dumb choices, over the last 30, 40 years, we have consistently looked at the situations the situations where we needed to make serious changes in order to make a better world for our, for our children, our grandchildren, and so on. And we've done the other thing because it meant a better payoff right now. I mean, we've, you get that with the, the, the Tea Party types who, who, who mm-hmm. insist that chanting drill, baby, drill at the, at the top of their lungs is going to cause oils to show up. Um, in oil reservoirs or something like that, people are basically trying to find ways to argue that it really is the right thing to do to wallow in what wealth we've got now and leave as little as possible for our children. We keep on doing that. At this point, I mean, the bills, the bills for that are coming due. That's why we've had the devastating economic situations over most of the last decade. We've had, you know, two major stock market crashes. We've had, um, I mean, the quote recovery unquote that we're in right now is a recovery only in the in the mind of, of Barack Obama. Um, we haven't recovered a bit. And in fact, we're, we're in a, we're in a prolonged depression. Many people are out of work. More people are going out of work. You know, the national environment is not in good shape. Um, our energy resources are dwindling rapidly. We're in a real mess, and we've put ourselves there by our own bad decisions
0: but not to worry in 2012 it's all gonna go away right
3: exactly you see that's the cop-out that's the cop out. we don't have we don't have to face up to the consequences of our own actions because in 2012 the space brothers are gonna land and take care of it all or you know the rapture is going to come every day now and then we'll start the cameras rolling for whatever the first left-behind movie was or you know what is it 2045 is I think when the uh, the singularity is going to happen and super intelligent supercomputers will solve all our problems Anything except sit down, face the facts, deal with the fact we've made some real stupid choices and we've eliminated a lot of positive options and we actually buckle down and do something or things are just going to keep getting worse. Not worse in an apocalyptic way, just that little bit worse every year until either we face our problems or they simply just destroy us
1: cheerful way to, to close this out there is there anything else you wanted to to leave as as a thought on that end
3: it's it's very easy to come up with an imaginative this some kind of imaginary utopian perfect you know New Jerusalem or you know a society of perfect communism or you know a glorious future among the stars or any of these you know what have you I think people lose track of the fact that of just how much beauty and just how much wonder and just how many possibilities for happiness there are right here, right now, in the world we've actually got. And I think if more people paid attention that, we'd see a little more effort toward making the world that we've got a better place to live in for ourselves and for everyone else. A little less of a tendency to go running off after some utopian fantasy that is never
7: going to happen.
1: Have made it through yet another extra environmentalist interview today with John Michael Greer on the apocalypse. I'm really proud of you. You should be proud of yourself. Because you just made it through another
0: one. It was it was a pretty difficult one, wasn't it, Justin?
1: I don't know. I, I think if you're coming from a particular religious viewpoint about the apocalypse, I think it could be a, a particularly difficult episode to get through. However, I think what I like about John Michael Greer's approach is he's trying to say that there's this whole myth of disempowerment that we buy into by waiting for a deity to go out there and do this stuff for us. And so, you know, whether you're monotheistic or polytheistic or whatever your belief system is, if you're going out there and waiting for the world to end, then you're going to be sorely disappointed about what comes next because that utopia that you're expecting is probably not going to be there. I think in the collapse community, we run into that a lot. Yeah, we do. Yeah, because so much of the thinking about collapse is either one, people aren't able to handle it, so they're scared. They're not able to acknowledge the reality, but then oftentimes there's a lot of people on the other side who have this whole myth of going and hiding in their bunker that going through the collapse is going to be more exciting than their day-to-day existence. And so, secretly, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who kind of hope for it, who kind of want it to happen. And what John Michael Greer is talking about indirectly in all of his discussions about the apocalypse is that kind of thinking as well. And so, he's trying to make the point that people need to get out there and create that world for themselves and, yes, acknowledge reality and understand that you know stockpiling some food and having it on hand is important. ancestors have been doing that for a very long time through preservation and all those things. And it is important to be able to protect yourself too. But if you think you can go and hide out in your apocalypse bunker and wait for uh, some better world to make itself into reality, that's not going to happen without your participation.
0: I think it's also very interesting when people say a specific date and they say on March 23rd, 2030, the sky is going to open up and it's going to swallow up all the faithful and we will be transported to another world where we will live happily ever after. And when that date comes and we're all standing around the hill and we've all sold off most of our bank accounts and we have no more jobs because we've yelled at our boss because the date's already coming, it's kind of, feels a little bit shameful to walk back into that job and say, hey boss, the end of the world didn't come and uh, I need my job back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this balance between understanding what's happening and also, you know, being responsible in terms of taking care of yourself because we're at a point where things are changing so rapidly in this world that everything is so unpredictable. And I really enjoyed the story from John Michael Greer in today's episode where he was talking about the Millerites and, you know, they they were wearing robes and they all got up on the hill and they were ready for Jesus to come back and then he didn't. And they had to go back into the world and face their family and friends and suddenly... It's like, oh, well, you know, he didn't come back. They had that moment where they had to go up to their employer and ask for their job back. So in tying this into the, the theme of collapse, we don't want to get so carried away with it that we alienate the people around us. But what we want to do is be prepared so that in case there is an emergency, in case there is something that is so dire in such a terrible situation, that we're able to welcome the people that we care about with open arms and be able to protect them and and care for them. And so I think that's really how to play that balance between being overly alarmist, but being realistic in looking at the challenges we face here in the near future.
0: I think that's an important point that you're making, Justin that we act as these kind of guardians for the future we're preparing ourselves in such a way as to act as pathfinders for those who will come after us you know and and when the light bulbs start coming on when they start realizing that hey maybe there's something to all these ideas that that all these people have been throwing around for years and years maybe there is something to the fact that Our country is not sustainable and that there's no way to live with such a finite amount of resources on such a small planet with so many people so when those light bulbs do start coming on there will be resources for those people to look towards and to understand that they're not alone and there's people have been thinking about this stuff
1: but that's the reason why we put these podcast episodes out is uh because it's something that we hope you can give to your family and friends in the case of helping to open them up. And some people are just gonna be not receptive. That's the reality of the situation. And there's no use banging your head against a wall, trying to convert the unconvertible. But what you're seeing with the Monday night football blackouts and things, you're seeing these teachable moments, you're seeing these cracks forming in the shell of normalcy. And what it's going to do is, as more and more of these cracks form, you're going to be able to slip some things in there. You know, maybe you have a DVD of a film on collapse or on peak oil or something that you've been trying to get your family member to watch for years and they just won't have anything of it. And then suddenly it's like, ah, oh, you see a, a bank run in Europe or, you know, you hear about a gas shortage somewhere else and it's like, hey, there's more to this. This is not a one-off incident. It's tied to a bigger thing. And I've been aware of this. There's people who've been aware of this for a long time. And, you know, you can give them that piece of media or you can be able to finally talk to them in a
0: realistic manner about what's going on. It's always important to talk in a realistic manner, I'd say. So, Justin, who's been uh, contacting the show lately? So many
1: thanks to all the people who are donating to the podcast that you would take your hard-earned money and throw it our direction it means so much to us. So thanks to Carl from Eagle Point, Oregon, who tossed us his donation.
0: Thanks also to Tom from Vancouver, BC, from his very, very generous donation. We really appreciate it. And unbelievably
1: generous donation from Zach in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, just thanks so much, guys, for for sending that money along. Seth and I put a lot of time into the show, but, you know, it's a labor of love and it's something that we really enjoy doing. And, you know, we just appreciate that you would throw money our direction. And everyone who's donated in the last few months received our bonus content, which is a a very special lecture on inequality and energy and all the things involved there. So I, I already got an email back from one of them just saying how much they enjoyed it. And they're gonna give it to some of their friends because it was so awesome.
0: I'm glad it's striking a chord. It really means a lot to us when we get donated from everybody and even the emails are just amazing. We got an email from Louisa from the United Kingdom who said that Joseph Tainter really struck a chord with her. She's presented with millions of ways to entertain and occupy herself and it's even possible for her to socialize every day. But she's been dissatisfied with this and she feels like she's not doing anything real or going anywhere. She says that she knows it sounds ungrateful and ridiculous but in reality she wants to live in a rural farmhouse in Scotland with her dogs, a fire, a pile of books and pen and paper and a plate of, of boiled vegetables. She says it seems like half the world is enslaved by the currency of manual labor and the other by the currency of commercialism. And it's very, it's very interesting that it is sometimes difficult to have a balance between the entertainment that we find ourselves constantly looking for and that inner peace that we so desire as human beings.
1: There's so many people out in the world who have it so bad off. You know, you think of the poverty in India and in uh, parts of Asia and even in our own countries here in the United States and Canada and I sit here and I complain sometimes about the state of the world and it's like you know what right do I really have because you know we're so privileged comparatively you know like I really don't have that much stuff but comparatively it's so easy uh, for me in my life uh, compared to most of the people in the world and so it does feel kind of strange sometimes to just say you know like we have all this and yet we feel dissatisfied that we really do want something simpler but you know that feeling of not going anywhere i think that's a collective feeling i've talked to so many friends recently who expected to have this velocity in their career like they're they were going to have this career that would just take them places and would be exciting and all these things and those careers are tied to the overall trajectory of our civilization which is uh, tied to the energy that we supply our civilization with. And that's declining. That net energy availability is declining as, as we've heard from Richard Heinberg and Joseph Tainter and all the people we've spoken with. And so we're all suffering this moment where we're just kind of like reaching the top of the hill on a roller coaster and it was you know, going up, going up, going up and now we're at the top and it's kind of just slowing down and we're all getting to like look at what's up ahead and we're like, whoa, wow. I'm not moving up anymore, I don't know how this feels, and suddenly I see this in front of me, and I don't know how going down pretty fast is going to feel.
0: And uh, you know, that can be a little bit scary, but... The view from the top is pretty magnificent, wouldn't you say, Justin? You can see out across the whole expanse of world civilizations, and we we have a really, a very good view of it. Being in the Western world, we have a very good view of that whole expanse, being at the top. But like you said, that curve is starting to level out, and maybe we're not going to be going any higher. Maybe it's time that everyone starts to fall a little bit. The way down can be
1: scary, but it doesn't have to be if we know what's coming and we're willing to make changes in our own lives and changes in the ways that we interact with people in our lives. And it can be intimidating when you look out in the world and see how many people have no idea what's coming. But I think that some of our future conversations are really going to cover that in a really positive way. So, Thanks for listening, Louisa, and who knows, you know, maybe inside the simplicity that we all long for, we'll be able to have that soon, and and maybe 10 years in the future, we'll say, you know, I used to have this complex life, and now I really am happier with things moving a bit slower and being a bit simpler. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. We got a really great email from Christian in Copenhagen, and he said that he's a web developer, and he's been listening to our podcast all day since he just discovered it uh, that morning so thanks so much for listening and, and going through our archive and uh, he says he's been on a mission to truly understand the world since uh, the winter of 2000 when he was writing his thesis and hit upon the site dieoff.org. When Christian looked into that site, it led him to the collapse of complex societies through Joseph Tainter like we spoke about in our last episode and the concept of peak oil and then lately he's been listening to a lot of Max Kaiser, and he likes how we uh, wrap up all these subjects and he's, he's gotten some excitement recently and uh, he wants to join into the action as an activist and dedicate the next five or ten years to to help changing the world, to help revolt and take down the current systems and, and the powers that be, and create a truly democratic and decentralized system that can really empower everyone on Earth for all humans to live in harmony with each other and with nature. And he's really excited about it. And he he's finding that he really doesn't care about earning money for a living anymore. And he told us that we need to look into the free man movement. And he gave us a few links, and I took a quick look at some of them. And they're really awesome, and so uh, hopefully we'll be able to incorporate some of the information there into some of our future episodes. Um, and he also wanted to point out that the whole legal system is just absolutely corrupt and controlled by the bankers of the world and the centralized sources of power that we talk about on our podcast. And you know, we think that the legal system is there, and it's this real thing, and it's these very solid laws. Christian's saying that it's absolutely a fiction, and it's just a reality that we're all indoctrinated into in order to readily accept that there's uh, these authorities and that they have power over us. And absolutely, you know, Christian, there's so many laws out there that are ridiculous. And I was just reading recently about the IMF that went into Greece, and they were giving their report on the state of the Greek government, and there were 17,000 laws that governed the interactions of, of Greece's government. And so essentially...
0: thousand laws. That's so many laws, Justin.
1: Yeah, and so essentially what had happened is the IMF found that Greece had effectively collapsed in governance because of the weight of bureaucracy. The government agencies didn't communicate with each other massive amounts of corruption were able to occur because there were so many laws and so they went in and they found this hospital that had 54 gardeners on their payroll. Wow. 54 gardeners and then they realized that this hospital didn't have a garden. Didn't have a garden. Yeah, the <laughs> hospital didn't even have a garden, and they had fifty-four gardeners on
0: on wow. staff that they were paying. And so that sounds like a job that I want, Justin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, be so a gardener with no garden. That'd be a wonderful <laughs> place to work.
1: Yeah, and so that shows you the way that you know the legal system that we trust to help regulate our society in the case of Greece is just ridiculous. It's absurd and it's a laughing matter now. And everyone who's been a part of that system for the last few years has known it's been a joke because of just all the laws governing every little thing, every little interaction. And so slowly what's happened is they've just been like, meh, I don't care. I'm not going to follow that law. And that attitude just snowballed and spread through the entire government and now they don't track basic government statistics and data. And so when they're trying to go to the EU and report their economic growth numbers or how well they're proceeding, you know, they might say our economy is contracting 6% this year, plus or minus 5%. And the EU's like, whoa, 5% is like a huge margin of error. You can't report that. And they're like, well, that's the best we can do. And so, you know, that's really the situation we face right now is that all our laws that we have are either so burdensome or completely focused in the wrong direction that it locks us into a particular pathway. And it comes back to the concept of societal momentum that, you know, there's so many positive things that are going on in the world right now. But collectively, we're all bound in this particular direction because of the way and the structure of our societies. Can you imagine
0: if you're driving down the highway and your gas tank said you're full plus or minus a full tank? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well i I might have a little bit or i might have a full tank that's
1: essentially the state that greece is in and so it doesn't make any difference to talk about you know when they're going to default or you know when any of this stuff is going to go down because it's pretty hard to imagine that in five years in two years you know that greece's 350 percent rate on a one-year bond is going to sustain itself if you and i invest money in Greek bonds right now for one year, it's almost to the point that in one quarter, we'll double our money. I mean, that's how crazy it is. Dana. Maybe
0: we should be in- investing all of our money into Greece right now. All of our donations from the Extra Environmental Podcast should be going into Greek bonds. <laughs> that's right. Maybe what we should be doing
1: is anyone that donates to the podcast will just put that money into Greek bonds. You know, If it ends up paying off, if Greece doesn't default in the next year and they get bailed out by who knows who, then we all make double our money and we'll donate that money back to you. (laughs) But I, I don't feel like that's a very likely outcome. Oh, So Christian's from Copenhagen. Didn't you study in Copenhagen?
0: I did. I studied in Copenhagen back in 2006. I spent six months there and it was probably the best time studying abroad that I've ever had. And I really, really loved it. I loved the bike lanes. I loved all the people there. I had a really great time. It was a little bit dark come uh, winter time when it got dark around four o'clock, but the time was one of the best of my life. And I would highly recommend anyone that wants to go to uh, hang out in one of the happiest places in the world, go to Copenhagen.
1: Could you imagine if in cities in North America, we had the number of bike commuters that they do over in Copenhagen? Like, wow, what an incredible
0: place it would be. Copenhagen has an incredible amount of bikes, an incredible bike infrastructure. I mean, there's bike lanes across the whole entire city. It's, it's fantastic when you ride with a huge group of bikers and they range from all different demographics, from like, you know, mothers with pregnant children to business guys going to work, to students, to old people. It's a very empowering thing when everyone just kind of rolls together on, on their bikes and you roll up next to like a car and there's like 50 bikers next to the one car. It's very empowering. There's even whole parking
1: decks in Copenhagen devoted to bikes. I saw some video recently of parking decks and it's just lined with
0: bikes. Oh yeah, it's, it's very serious. Awesome. It's very serious. You go to the train station there, people ride their bikes to the train station and leave their bike out front, and there are massive amounts of bikes just line the whole train station. It's it's impressive. Thanks so much for listening,
1: Christian, and thanks to all of our listeners across Europe, but especially in Denmark.
0: We got an email from Luke in Spain who's working there, an expatriate from the United States. So Luke commented on the fact in our last episode that I talked about how American culture has been pervasive all over the European world. Luke, Luke has some interesting points about those invasive cultural traits making their way into Spain and other like cultures and TV shows making their way in as well. It's very interesting the language barriers that these shows kind of cross over and kind of transplant themselves in, into the base minds of many a Spaniard.
1: Luke wrote in to tell us about what life has been like as an expat living and working in northern Spain and that he's been there for three years now as what's called a language and culture assistant working in different primary and secondary and adult education centers. And so he was telling us about how he worked for two years in a primary school and a kindergarten, like middle to lower class families and people who immigrate there. And he was telling us that it was a very eye-opening experience to the much less glamorous side of European education and day-to-day life. And so many times when we from North America go over to Europe, we just go to the glamorous cities and we totally miss out on what life has like in so many other parts and vice versa when so many people from Europe come over to North America to visit, you know, it's very easy to just go to New York and, uh, you know, think you've been to the United States, whereas there is much less glamorous parts of the United States to visit, right? So we both have the same problems. What kind of
0: unglamorous places are you talking about, Justin? If you're listening and you're
1: in the United States, you have an idea of uh, unglamorous places. (laughs) Cleveland, Cleveland. Detroit! (laughs) Detroit! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Anyways, uh, he was just commenting on pervasiveness of American culture because it's really appalling to think that in a society which Halloween or Christmas or anything like that now supersede the traditional holidays that coincide at the respective times of year, of Halloween and Christmas. So he was just shocked at how much influence American culture has had on a traditional Spanish celebration. And yeah, we
0: actually talked about those th- same themes in an upcoming episode with uh, Mr. Berman, don't we, Justin?
1: Yeah, we, we've got a conversation with Morris Berman, who wrote a book called Why America Failed. And he talks about the reasons why American culture is so pervasive around the world. And he's an absolutely brilliant historian. and. Thinker about culture. And so uh, we'll cover a lot of those themes uh, in an upcoming podcast. But Luke went on to, to talk about how he's working at the school where people were interested in not the manufactured images of the United States, but the reality of the United States. And so, for example, they watched a clip from Michael Morsico and they discussed how a country with the highest per capita spending on healthcare still falls behind Cuba in its healthcare system and they wonder why people in the United States would allow this to happen to themselves and why they aren't fleeing the U.S. in droves to go to other countries where they have decent healthcare systems. And so, essentially, he was just putting this all together to to say that he agreed with a theme that comes up repeatedly on the extra environmentalist, and that's of uh, multiculturalism and democratic socialism in Europe, and there's people who go from one language class to another, studying three or more languages at a time, and even though Spaniards consider themselves behind the curve on different languages in Europe, they're still obligated to take English, and they're still obligated to choose between German and French, and so even though Spain and Europe is definitely not perfect, his point is that because they have social medicine and education there's definitely some things that even the most conservative members of their society consider fundamental rights that they're not going to give up in the shadow of collapse of the eurozone he also wanted to point out that they also have Jersey Shore on repeat there
0: too did you happen to see Jersey Shore while you were in Spain I did yeah and actually terrible the ladies that I was staying with called their their uh, their home Gracias Shore The ladies The ladies of Gracias Shore (laughs) <laughs> wow. It's so
1: scary that those images are being broadcast around the world and people are forming their ideas of
0: an entire nation based on that. I mean, not even just the United States, their own nation. They kind of bring those ideas in with, into them. They're like, hey, Americans think that this stuff is cool, so we probably should think it's cool as well. These ideas have made their ways across the world, and not only are we seeing them in American TV, but they show up in culture, in, in language. All these ideas that are taken from American television and television television in general, kind of just make their way into culture and, and it's like, when did you guys decide to start shopping non-stop for Christmas things? When did you start singing Christmas songs? When did Santa start showing up in the middle of downtown Barcelona? <laughs> I mean, wh- when did these things start happening? Have these things been happening forever? When did, yeah. when did that shift happen?
1: It's, it's weird being in a country like Spain and seeing McDonald's everywhere and big box stores and you're like, oh my god, you know, not all only did we mess up our own country, but we've messed up so many other countries.
0: It's tough. It's really tough for those people, and I'm, I feel I feel bad being an American and seeing like McDonald's sponsored tour buses rolling down the street. And I look and I kind of shake my head. And I'm so, I, I, the people I'm walking with. I'm just apologizing. I'm like, I'm sorry, we have McDonald's. And they're like, No, no, we love the Big Mac. No, no, we love McDonald's. <laughs> and you're like, No. I I was talking to one of my Italian friends who who was driving a car since they have such a t- t- tough time parking in downtown Roma that I mentioned to her when I was we were driving around that some of the parking lots in the United States are bigger than the actual stores themselves. And she turned to me and she's like, wow, that would be amazing to have that. That would be the best. I would love that. And I was like, no, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't at all. That, it's the worst thing ever. Yeah, it, it's
1: true. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder sometimes, like we talked with Jane Brox about the book Brilliant, about what life was like in rural America before electricity was there. And it makes me wonder sometimes about how much we're complicit in the problems that we blame on politicians and we blame on other people because it's like, yeah, you know what? Living living life easy is pretty nice. You go to the store and you pay money for something and it might have been shipped all the way around the world. And it... You know, a cup of coffee can cost like three bucks if you get a really fancy one that has like, uh, you know, steamed milk in it or something. But that coffee was like picked just with someone's hands in like Ethiopia or Guatemala or somewhere and shipped around the world. And I can just pay a few bucks for it. When things work the way that our system is designed, it's pretty incredible. And it's so easy, you know, to think that you can just go to this store and have a million places to park and not have to walk very far to get into a giant offering of all the different things from around the world that we want. Like so many people really want that. And the problem is that it's so pervasive, the images of it, and the living's so good, you know, quote unquote, comparatively, that the rest of the world wants it too. And there's just not enough resources to support it. And uh, so we're going to get to figure out in these next few years how we decide what's next, you know? We talk about equity and we might see images of starving people around the world, but are the people in the developed nations Really willing to give up seventy to eighty percent of their resources to make it happen. I don't think they are.
0: And no, they're they're definitely not. You try to take, you know, a little bit of their resources away. You say, Oh, I'm sorry that we're not gonna have carry this cereal anymore and people get really upset about it. There'll be some rides in the street over that bread that's that's not there anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's just worked.
0: simple things. So Luke says it's always good to vent and he wishes he had some constructive medium like we have, but Writing us an email has helped him to vent a little bit of steam.
1: If you'd like to vent to us, hey, we're here to do that. That's why we've got a voicemail line and an email address so that you can send us your stories about frustrations that you're witnessing by seeing so many people who are just completely blind to our reality. In fact, we'd really love to hear your stories about that
0: if you'd like to call in and leave us a voicemail. We have a Twitter following that you can go on and follow us and and read all of our tweets that we tweet out about all these extra environmentalist ideas and thoughts and topics. So
1: yeah, thanks so much for your email, Luke, and thanks for your story. We really love to hear about things that our listeners are observing out there in the world. You know, give us a call and tell us a story and, uh, you know, we'll edit you up and, and make you sound uh, fancy because Seth and I take some heavy editing to make it sound good.
0: Especially with my terrible head cold that makes me sound like I'm a troll. I'm <laughs> yep. a troll.
1: So we'll we'll edit up your voicemail and and make you sound like a uh, less like a troll or, and less like a troll with a head cold
0: phone calls are just when I get those things just makes me so happy if you want to brighten up my day you want to brighten up Justin's day send us a voicemail and that will make us smile for the rest of the day and if, yeah, if that's what you want to do that's great.
1: And if you do call in, you will get the winter mixtape of all the songs that say winter. They're less energetic than a lot of the songs that I would have chosen over the summer, much more down tempo and relaxed.
0: So thanks so much for listening again to The Extra Environmentalist. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. So get out there and ride an elephant.
4: 2011 comes to a close, there's a tremendous amount of focus on Europe and what's happening with its economy, but big concerns mounting about China, which is clearly showing signs of slowing down. For a long time now, people have been saying Chinese economy, the miracle is about to end. You really think it's ending right now? What, What tells you that's happening? Well, if you look at all of the indicators, they really point down. Electricity consumption is flat, car sales, a bellwether for consumption also flat, but property prices collapsed in October. They were down 30% in cities like Shanghai and Beijing as developers were offering discounts. Industrial orders are down, especially those relating to the domestic economy. Inflation has been dropping by incredible margins mm-hmm. is the that, last two months. But is that a good thing, though? That means the central bank can start priming the pump again. Uh, Yes, but it's fallen a lot faster than it should, and and that's really a problem. So it went, for instance, from 5.5% in October to about 4.2% in November. Um, Yes, you'd like to see inflation come down, but you don't want to see it come down that fast. And we've also got to remember that inflation has probably doubled those numbers. So there's really less margin for um, stimulating than most people would assume just by looking at the official statistics.
6: So as Aaron said in the beginning, it really has been 10 to 15 years that incredibly people like you and many others have predicted that China is going to collapse. It never has. During the financial crisis, we had a big slowdown. Right. They just started priming the pump, as Aaron said, went right back. So what is it about now? that is actually going to be the crash that everybody's been talking about?
4: Well, there are a couple things. So for instance, yes, they would like to put more money into their economy. But I don't know if they have the flexibility to do so. Because they do have inflation. They've got problems with the banks with a lot of questionable loans. Um, prov- provinces are, are really in debt. And so there really is less flexibility to start dumping money into their economy. Just one statistic, I think, tells it all. Uh, China's M2 at the end of November was 34% larger than America's, even though the American economy is more than twice the size of China's. So, so you put more money into the Chinese economy. I mean, what is it going to do? And they've already built all their ghost cities. The real problem for them, though, is that you've got Europe. I mean, and, right. and um, How exposed are they to slow slowdown in Europe? It's their biggest trading partner. It's right? their, The EU, uh, collectively, is their largest trading partner. And so orders to Europe have fallen down. That's why we've seen all these problems in the export factories since September. You know, China keeps issuing these numbers about export growth, 13.8 percent in November. But we see throughput statistics, air cargo numbers, and the problems in the export factories, workers taking to the streets. That doesn't say that exports are going up. And the reason why exports are having such a big pro- uh, such a problem for China right now is primarily Europe. So
6: let's assume you're right. What happens? Take us through the next couple of years.
4: Well, I think probably what we're going to see over the next six months is more obvious signs of deterioration in the Chinese economy. The real issue here, though, is not so much the economy, but it's the political system. Because even in good times, we've seen uh, protests in the hundreds of thousands of years. And it's not just the number of protests going up dramatically, though that's bad in itself. It's really the violence of the protests. So we're not seeing just protests and strikes. We're seeing insurrections, riots, bombings, and that incident we now have in southern Guangdong Province, which is the heart of the export belt, at that village in Wukong, where the basically you've got a standoff now. Um, That's really a very serious thing for Beijing. I'm sure that, uh, in addition to all their other problems, they're very concerned about what the local authorities are going to do because if this spreads like it might, then they're real trouble for the People's
8: Republic. Tell me your secrets and ask me your questions Now let's go back to the start. Run in circles, coming tails Heads on the sirens apart Nobody said it was easy It's such a shame for us to part Nobody Next time it on The Extra the Environmentalist ever
7: well, I had a conversation with a Maya leader just a few months ago in uh, in Southern Belize actually, a Kipchi man, and he felt that 2012 was indeed going to be an auspicious year, and that my people were using it to take stock of what had happened in the last Bakhtun, the last 400 years, which have been largely a history of colonialism and repression and now lingering racial discrimination and maya people in general if they were thinking about 2012 were thinking that this great shift in the maya calendar and it it really is a very auspicious time in in the maya long count calendar but the maya did not perceive of it at any point in time as an ending it would have been seen as a time in which uh, one cycle was completed and the seeding of a new cycle.
2: I don't think managing
3: fear is the question. The, the, uh, the issue is, is to position yourself and those you love and those in your community in a, in a place where the fear cannot disrupt your ability to care for yourself.
8: Um, it is not our job or anybody else's job to manage
3: the panic or the rage that is taking place. There's no program that'll do that. There's no magic bullet. There's no crystal. This is going to be extremely messy. It's going to be extremely violent. It's going to be extremely unpleasant, and let us disabuse ourselves of the notion that we can do something to make it all come up smelling like buttercups and roses.
2: Novelty, most of the time, does erupt or does find its way into the continuum, but it it more or less oozes into the continuum. It happens gradually. And so that's, that's harder to measure, and it's harder to define. I mean, when it, when it comes to where were we 10 years ago, where were we 15 years ago, how much has changed? Obviously a lot has changed, you know? Is there a measurable advance in sort of the evolution of the human species in that time? I'm not sure there is, you know?
1: it's a free market christmas special with timmy g and uncle benny and now our hosts timmy g and uncle benny
0: hello there folks i'm timmy g and i think that christmas is a great time full of cheer and spirit and buying things if you're a child and you haven't bought lots of things then you're not really living in the Christmas time. Santa comes but once a year, so make sure that he is stocking your Christmas tree with lots and lots of stuff. Isn't that right, Uncle Benny?
1: That's right, it's absolutely the most important free market holiday around Christmas time. Without Christmas, our entire economy would actually not exist, so get out there and make sure that you're purchasing lots and
0: lots of consumer electronics. That's right kids, consumer electronics are the backbone of the American culture. If not for consumer electronics, I wouldn't even have a job and your parents wouldn't either. So it's very important that you support the economy by consuming lots of crap, I mean electronics. Uncle Benny, I heard you have a story to tell all these little children here.
1: That's right Timmy, I have a very special story from the good book itself. That's right, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Well, actually, we'll save that one for another time. We'll go with the Bible since that's
0: what started Christmas. That sounds like a great story. I can't wait to hear it. Hey, kids, let's gather around the fire and hear what Uncle Benny has to say from the good book. Yay! 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 Story time!
8: I love stories!
0: Okay, kids,
1: now it's story time with your special Uncle Benny. So I'm going to be reading out of the Bible. Let's just forget that whole Christmas story part and go straight to creation that's when the most capital was introduced onto this planet. So God created all the world and stuff for seven days. And on the first day, he created a few things that were useful as derivatives. On the second day, he created even more things that were useful as collateralized debt obligations. On the third day, He created some things that were even useful to trade under the table in the shadow banking system. But on the eighth day after God rested, God created jobs. Yes, that's right, God was the original job creator. He created the job to provide all the benefits that you need in your life, including your 401k and also your house.
0: Now Uncle Benny, what happened on the ninth
8: day? On the ninth day, God created the Federal Reserve, which must
1: always exist and stay exactly where it's at. Now,
0: Uncle Benny, tell us more about this Federal
1: Reserve. It's a very magical place where elves run around the trees making special gifts that then come out of ATMs using magic, just like at the North Pole. And speaking of the North Pole... Who's that I hear?
0: Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. Is that Santa Claus I hear? A jolly old Saint Nick coming through the window? Yay!
8: I hope it's Yay! Good. I love Santa Claus! Yay.
1: Alright, kids, I hope you left some of that special milk for the 1%, I mean 1% milk out for Santa here. Yay!
2: We love Santa Claus!
8: Hello, kids! It's a very special Christmas this year, and now that the North Pole had its credit rating put on negative by Moody's and Fitch, we decided that we're going to have to take a different approach. So, I'm no longer known as Santa Claus, I'm actually repo clause. Repo clause! Yay! Repo clause! We love repo clause. Because kids, everything that you bought on that credit has a repo clause in the credit card contract, meaning that I get to take it all since you can't pay for it. So all those gifts under the tree are going right back to the elves to feed their families and to make sure that the
0: North Pole stays at a triple A credit rating. Now Santa, this sounds like a very interesting economic plan. Did you think of it yourself or did you have some help from Uncle Benny here?
8: Actually, Uncle Benny was out there drawing out the entire plan this whole way. He even sent advisors up to the North Pole to help us put our plan together. So a special thanks to Uncle Benny for taking care of all the details. Now all I have to do is get Prancer to help me take all the gifts. Across the nation, back up to the North Pole to protect our credit
0: rating. Now, Santa, if you behave really nice this year, Uncle Benny might even help you to not pay any taxes like a lot of our multinational corporations. Wouldn't that be great, Santa?
8: Oh, oh, oh! That means Christmas will be every day of the year. All right, kids. I have a special gift for all of you. It's a lump of coal. Yay! Lumps of so coal. Yay! That's right, kids. You can use your lump of coal to burn for heat, because I know you'll be
0: cold in your houses
8: this year. All of that coal makes for an excellent energy source.
0: That's right, children. So if you're really extra bad this year, you might get double the coal, and so your parents can keep your house warm.
8: Yay! Yay!
0: There won't be any electricity this year, so make sure to get your coal from Santa
8: uncle benny hey timmy g why is there a green hand reaching out of that fireplace
0: oh no that's the gingrich coming to steal christmas watch out kids
8: Ah! you're a loser newt gingrich